This is the Small Moves Podcast, episode 17. I've been thinking about changing the color of my hair. I'm thinking somewhere between royal blue and fuchsia. What do you all think? You're listening to the Small Moves Podcast. Small steps for big progress. With your host, Jason Hertzberger. Your next step starts now. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Small Moves Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Hertzberger. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the world's leading source of audio entertainment, and I have been a subscriber of Audible for quite some time. I have to let you know that as a listener of the Small Moves Podcast, you are entitled to get a 30-day free trial of the subscription service through Audible, as well as one free audiobook. You can get this by going to smallmoves.co forward slash audiobooks. One book that I would recommend is Tribe by Sebastian Younger. Sebastian Younger is the author of The Perfect Storm, which was later turned into a George Clooney uh, movie. And it was an incredible, an incredible book. He is an amazing guy. He also is responsible for a documentary called Restrepo, which is one of the most tear-jerking, frankly, raw documentaries on war that I have ever seen. He is just an incredible creator of content. Uh, this book was amazing where he really did a lot of background research and reported on how humans are basically nothing more than higher apes and how we have to function within our tribes and some made a lot of suggestions on ways that we can do that in today's world, which isn't exactly the easiest thing to do sometimes. Huge fan of the book, huge fan of the author. Highly, highly recommend you checking out Tribe by Sebastian Younger or one of the other selections that they have on Audible, which is reaching nearly 1 million options. That said, we'll get back to the show today. I am interviewing a good friend of mine and professional photographer, Devin Rowland. You can find her in Devin Rowland Photography. And Devin and I, we have been friends since 2007, 2008, I would say, is when her and I first met. And initially, she was just another one of the girls at the dances that we would periodically dance together. And oh, by the way, I happened to notice that she was generally lugging around a camera half the places that she was going. So that was always fun to see. And she has turned a hobby of taking pictures at dances into a professional photography career. And it was really a great turn for her. And she was able to take something that she loved and turn it into a great way to make money and now into a great career. I think that was a fantastic story to hear and about how she did it and best ways to do that without really making it get old and you end up losing your love for the passion itself. Um, Devin is also, frankly, one of the most creative people that I have ever met in my life. We'll put aside for the moment that I don't think she even knows what her natural hair color is as she changes it to some other color of the rainbow or alternative colors of the rainbow um, every month or two. So, and she's been doing that for as long as she can remember. So I don't know if even she knows what color her hair is by nat- at its nature. But um, that aside, she has a lot of really interesting creativity practice things that she does, uh, whether it be bad advice Mondays that she does on Facebook, where she asks you to post some questions for her for an issue that you're having, and she will proactively give you the worst possible advice that you could possibly imagine ever getting, um, and as well as other things sort of along those lines where she sort of hones her creativity muscle, which I think really would probably help her with her job. Uh, just really inter- interesting conversation, really interesting person. I really had fun with this one. I hope you guys do as well. But that being said, I will leave the rest of it to the interview, and I bring you Devin Rowland. Here we go. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and you're listening to the Small Moves Podcast, small steps for big progress. Let's prepare to ignite. Hey, Devin, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? 
Not bad. Um, the audience heard, just heard a little bit about you during the introduction to the show. I sort of mentioned how you and I had the chance to meet each other initially and what it is that you do for a living and what um, is one of your somewhat, let's just call it a piece of your signature fashion sense um, a little bit during the show. But um, introduce yourself to the audience a little bit. Just sort of tell them a little bit about sort of you, where, like, where are you from? What is like, where are you from? What did you do? What made you pick up a camera? You know, the first time, um, how do you, how do you kind of, how do you just sort of work the tools of your art as so to speak? And we'll just kind of go from there. Great. Uh, well, I am Devin Rowland. Uh, I have been based in the Washington DC area for sort of 15 years, depending on how you count it. Uh, I grew up moving all over the place and then sort of settled around the DC area when I was about 16. Um, and I went to college in Maine and kind of kept coming and going and still find myself back there all the time. Um, so it's as much home as anywhere really has been. It's um, funny. Yeah. It's uh, people are like, where are you from? And it kind of depends on who I'm talking to. I'm like, oh, I'm from the Midwest. You're like, oh, I lived in Europe for a couple of years or, yeah, I'm from the Mid-Atlantic or I lived in New England. Um, so it's a very, it's a very flexible definition. That's funny. Um, but uh, yeah, so when I was in college in Maine, I went to College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, which is a tiny hippie school on the ocean, which is gorgeous. I was about, I was about to ask, is Bar Harbor as beautiful as I hear? I hear amazing things. I've never seen it. Well, everyone told me I was doing it wrong because I would show up at the end of August and I would leave at the beginning of May. Um, so I tried staying up there for one summer and it wasn't quite my scene, but it's a, it's a beautiful place. I definitely still go back. Um, and even in January with five feet of snow on the ground, it is gorgeous. Um, I only saw that, I don't know if it was five, it was definitely over three. I only saw that once. It was pretty impressive. Um, but yeah, negative 28 gets old real fast. Woof. <laughs> so... <laughs> that awesome uh you can feel everything inside your nose freeze mm -hmm. it's, it's awesome of, it's fantastic yeah it's, it is a an experience we'll go with that nothing, nothing more invigorating than frozen cartilage nope, anyway you're awake <laughs> um so yeah so i went to college there and took a photography class just my last year of school um my roommate had taken it the term before that it had been offered and so as a senior i kind of had the the in on getting into the class the next year um, no particular, um, photo background before that. My parents would sort of give me a camera when we were on vacation to kind of entertain me while they were doing other stuff, um, as a kid. And then it was all just sort of point and shoot film, which we'd get developed and, you know, half of them would be sort of gray all over cause they were poorly exposed and overblown with the, the horrible, uh, built in flash that would go off. Um, so no, no concept of what films I was using or what cameras I was using. I think I had a Kim possible camera at one point. Like it wasn't a, it wasn't anything serious. Um, so I took a, a digital class in college and got my first DSLR, which was a Nikon D40 for anyone who knows or cares. Um, and from there I just kind of kept taking pictures of everything that was going on around me, which included, uh, I don't think it was quite Charm City Swing at the Austin Grill, but it was definitely Charm City Swing at that kind of weird, terrible lounge space that was just down the street from it with like swinging chairs and stuff. Um, terrible. It was, it was interesting. I appreciate the effort to keep it in the same area. Um, <laughs> and so then I just kind of kept shooting dance events and fire performance and burlesque and sideshow that was going on at um, the Palace of Wonders, which was on 8th Street in Northeast and is now an Italian restaurant, which is very sad. Um, and so I still kind of shoot that stuff on occasion, but my first, uh, full-time job was at the U S Naval Academy photographing their freshman boot camp. Oh, wow. So I shot plebe summer and I worked about 65 hours a week with a camera in my hands for 10 weeks in a row. And at the end of it, I was not sick of it. I still wanted to get up at four in the morning and get out to meet the kids at the Zeppelins or Zeppelins and Zodiacs and uh, Zeppelins would be way cooler. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I figured that was that was probably a good sign that maybe this was a career I should go with. Um, and so it just kind of worked out from there. I worked with a, a company doing newborn photos for a while. And then about two years ago, yeah, coming up in two years ago, um, I took the break from that and just went 100% solo on my own business. That is awesome. Now, um, something that you mentioned um, earlier about when you were a kid in the the – 
the photography that you were doing there just sort of to entertain yourself while you're on vacation with your parents. Um, there was one particular word that you used that I found very intriguing, and I'd like you to explain it a little bit more to the audience. What is film? <laughs> well, back in the day, uh, <laughs> there was this weird thing that was covered in chemicals that you would have to put into a camera that did not have a computer inside of it. Um, I don't understand. I know. And then you had to like send it somewhere and they would do other weird things with chemicals. And then eventually they would like print it on paper. And yep. I do actually still shoot film on occasion with a little bit more knowledge of what I'm doing now. But uh, I am nowhere near comfortable enough with it to do it as a, a professional. Got it. Did you, out of curiosity, when you were doing it when you were a kid, did you enjoy it when you were doing it as kind of a hobby or was it just like, like what you mentioned, like it was just the thing, the thing that you could do so that you weren't just walking stoically next to your parents while you were on vacation somewhere? Like, did you actually enjoy it and you came back to it later because you remembered enjoying it or was it just a thing? I think it was a little bit of both. I think, um, I mean, there were definitely, as I, as I kind of got older and got into, you know, middle school, high school, um, I started, you know, bringing a camera to school to take pictures of my friends or kind of just goofing around that sort of documentary side of it, which I think is largely due to having moved around so much, having those pictures was an important, um, sort of memory connector to look back on, you know, the people that I knew a year ago who now live in seven different continents, um, and so maybe not seven. I don't know anyone who's lived in Antarctica, but, um, so I think, I think that was there. And then there were definitely points where, you know, I wanted to feel like an artist. I remember walking around, taking pictures, thinking I was very deep and important, um, which of course they, they were terrible, but <laughs> now, um, I had a good, why, why did you, why did you move around so much? Like, it sounds like, it sounds like you bopped around quite a bit. Like were, were you in a military family or what, what, what got you kind of glow popping so much? Uh, it was actually ice cream. Um, really? Yep. There, Tell me about that. There was an ice cream company based in Green Bay, Wisconsin called Good Humor. And my mom worked for Miller doing advertising and then moved to Green Bay to get a little bit, uh, quieter hours, a little bit easier company um, when she had me. And then my stepdad was, um, he's English and he moved from England to Hong Kong to Sydney to Green Bay, Wisconsin, when the company that he worked for, which was Bird's Eye Walls, which had been bought by Unilever, mm -hmm. Unilever bought Good Humor. Um, oh, wow. So okay. Basically just mega mass corporations. I was about, I was about to say like you had two, two parents with two massive international, like transnational conglomerates. Wow. Okay. So. So, uh, yeah, so he came in when that was purchased and he and my mom met and then they got married and my mom quit the company. Um, and then he was transferred to the Netherlands and we went there and then we were transferred to Italy and we were there for a year. Um, and then he retired and we started in Charleston, South Carolina and drove north to somewhere in New York, um, looking for where we were moving when we came back to the States. Mm -hmm. Uh, and somehow Annapolis, Maryland is what caught their eye. Wow. Well, Annapolis, Annapolis, Maryland is nothing to look down your nose at. It's one of the nicest cities. Like it's a nice little town. Yeah. It's a beautiful um, area. Which for the, for those that are, for those that are listening that are unfamiliar, Annapolis is the capital of the state of Maryland um, and has got some of the most beautiful old school brickwork style towns. That is one of the most beautiful little towns that I've ever seen in my travels. So yeah, it's definitely definitely worth a worth a uh, definitely absolutely worth a little Google search. Maybe even worth a trip. <laughs> definitely, it's it, what I what I find what I find interesting about traveling that much, especially in in sort of the way that you guys did with the types of jobs that both of your parents had. How were they? How were they able to sync up their careers? Because normally, normally with a with I guess with a family structure like that, either one one parent is working and the other one is staying home, or they both happen to be working for the same corporation, but just in different departments or different jobs where they could semi easily sync up their their transfers to, so that they're working in the same places. Like how were your parents able to figure that out? I'm, I'm curious. Cause I find it like you, not every massive transnational conglomerate has offices in the same, 
in the same cities. So like, how were you guys able to figure that out? I'm, I, I, I'm curious. Well, so my mom actually um, quit the company when she and my stepdad got married in Wisconsin um, because it was a direct um, payment chain issue. Okay. She would be able to impact her salary. So got it. she had to leave the company. Um, and then when we moved, she had been working as a travel agent before that. And so she kind of just continued helping um, like our local American women's club. She planned trips for them um, and just kind of worked through things along those lines. Um, and so she kind of just kept doing her thing a little bit. But so she, my mother has had probably five or six different careers over the course of her life. She was a teacher. Uh, she got her MSW and decided social work wasn't her thing uh, earlier on. And that's how she got into advertising. And then um, she was a travel agent. She was in marketing. So it was a it was a nice way to grow up knowing that you aren't stuck doing one thing. Um, so while, I mean, my stepdad, obviously he, he started at, as 20 something in one company and he retired with them. And that is definitely not the norm anymore. Not um, at all. My mom is sort of the, the millennial before it was the millennial thing. That's to Jump around. What's, um, you, you mentioned, you mentioned the American women's club organization. What, what is that? I've never heard of that. Um, so in places that have large expat communities, they tend to have corporate or corporations. Um, they tend to have organizations, for basically the wives of the men who are usually the ones who come over to work. Um, and so it's just sort of organizations for yoga groups or travel or any of those things. And for people to kind of get together and have like a 4th of July celebration somewhere that may not actually celebrate 4th of July or a Thanksgiving celebration somewhere that may not do Thanksgiving. Um, and so that's pretty much. It's like, we don't celebrate 4th of July in New Zealand, but yeah. (laughs) So it's like we're in Rome celebrating Thanksgiving, which is funny. Anyway. Exactly. Got it. So when when you when you made the transition from what what were first of all, let me go back a second. What were you planning on doing when you were coming out of school? If not if not photography? Like what was the what was the original plan there? I had absolutely no idea. Um so my college let you the draw, a lot of the draw of my college was that you would get a bachelor's in human ecology. Um, and what that meant was you could take pretty much any classes you wanted to, and then you would get a degree for it. Um, I had a, I had a rough transition coming back from Europe. Um, I actually wound up dropping out of high school halfway through junior year, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of mucked around in community college, taking classes, dropping classes, um, mostly just meeting interesting and strange people and having interesting and strange uh, adventures. Um, and then I sort of finally got serious about it. I was like, Oh, I should, I should make something out of this. So I did a a sort of serious term where I was actually getting good grades and going to classes and full load and that kind of stuff. And then I applied to a couple different real universities. Um, and then went to that, um, and just figured I needed a degree that would say I am I am trainable. Someone should hire me because a lot of places don't consider a GED um, to be worth a whole lot. Um, sure. <clears throat> so, so I went to college and took a bunch of actually psychology and literature classes more than anything. Okay. Um, and then I also I made puppets. I did evolution theory. Um, it was it was a pretty great school. I got a very uh, unique set of classes on my my. Uh, yeah, that actually sounds fascinating. <laughs> yep. The puppet skills have come in handy more often than you would think. Um, <laughs> but uh, I finally got rid of all of my last ones because when you have a Muppet and you move around a lot, it's really weird to try and figure out where to put it without it just being creepy and staring at you from a corner. Um, and then you put it under the bed and then that's just a horror movie waiting to happen. Um, so I finally gave it to a friend of mine who had an office with a, a window on the street, I think in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And so she like put it in the window so that people would see it when they were walking by. I thought that was a pretty good, pretty good use of art. Um, but anyway, so I didn't know, That's I didn't know what I was going to do coming out. Um, I worked as a rigger for a couple of months with a friend of mine doing a theater install in Schenectady, New York, uh, okay. in January. It was freezing. Um, always love, always love the sound of that word, Schenectady. Yep. Anyway, go I ahead. I can spell it now, which is, uh, I feel like a useless life skill, but. Um, so I did that. I worked with a crafter in DC, um, making book purses for rebound designs. So I learned a lot about measuring and ironing and glue and different types of glues for different things. And it was, uh, it was an interesting, 
um, career as well. And I worked retail because that's what you do when you're a 20 something out of college um, nowadays. And then just the photography what, just wound up being the right connections, basically. What what is what is a book purse? Is it a purse made out of old books, or is it, is it a purse that's made to carry books? Um, you possibly could carry books in them, but it is a purse made out of old books. Um, she gets a lot of books from library sales or sort of libraries that they can't use the books anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she'll take hardcover books and make just gorgeous pieces out of them. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, what, what's um, is she is she still in business? She is. Uh, so the company is Rebound Designs. Spelled correctly. Spelled correctly. Uh, I am ninety percent sure it is Designs. Yeah, Rebound Designs. And so you can just go to ReboundDesigns.com. Um, and I don't think she. Yeah, I'm gonna still- I'm gonna link to that. That actually sounds interesting. Okay, so so you were you were saying. Um, yeah. So and then I just kind of did a whole bunch of things, and the photography just kind of kept becoming more and more a part of my life. I had a camera in my bag pretty much anywhere I was going. Um, and I was photographing more and more dance events as that was becoming more and more sort of feasible. Um, and then eventually I was connected with someone who was running newborn photography, uh, in Annapolis. And so I started working with that company and then that was kind of where my photography skills really were able to, uh, kind of grow and I was doing it four to five to six days a week sometimes. Um, and so just having a camera in your hands that much and being faced with really terrible, uh, light in hospital rooms, um, and occasionally different situ- uh, difficult circumstances like newborns who have five minutes between crying and that kind of thing. Um, oh gosh. Okay. And I, I, I am now the person who will happily sit next to small children on an airplane because the sound does not bother me in the slightest. <laughs> You've been, you've been conditioned to it. I have been a hundred percent conditioned to it. That's fantastic. So. Yeah. I, I remember my, my, my first experience with the evil child on a plane was back in 2001, August of 2001 on my way back to the States from France. Oh. Um, I spent three weeks there by myself. I mentioned that in a, in a previous episode that, uh, that I had released and, um, <laughs> yeah, I, th- it was, it was my first time really experiencing that phenomenon and it hit every stereotype that you'd ever seen in a movie on a TV show or from anybody that travels more than they should. Oh no. This, this beautiful, gorgeous little toddler, <laughs> the Marilyn Monroe, bouncy curls, bright ice blue eyes. Yep screaming at the top of her lungs, Aww. running, running. And we, we were, we were coming across the pond. So we were in a 747. So she was running down the one aisle, cutting through, running back up the other aisle, singing and dancing and like tapping people on the shoulders as she ran by. And it, this lasted for six hours Yeah, of this roughly eight hour flight. Oh, um, it was exciting. It was exciting. Uh, it was, ex- it was exciting. I, I learned what infanticide feels like, <laughs> or at least the, the early thoughts of it. Like I, it, it like, like Chris Rock says in one, in one of his comedy routines, it was like about when he was talking about OJ Simpson, when he said, yeah, I'm not saying I would have killed her, but I understand. It's like, it's like, I, it's like, it was one of, it was one of those situations where you were, you were fighting the, you know, you were fighting time flying against the flying against Uh, you, like taking a flight late in the day, crossing, going in the wrong direction. So I was in the middle of, you know, a 40 hour day trying to sleep through, you know, flying through day the entire time. And here's this absolutely adorable little monster. Um, yeah. Fun times. I managed no. to get the opposite. Wish I could have, wish I could have channeled you there a little bit. Right. I managed to get the opposite of that where we were, uh, I was flying to Australia for my brother's wedding and it was, well, that's a I, short flight. I think it was technically the longest flight in the world. It was from Dallas to Sydney and it was like 15 some hours. Oh. Um, and you saw the parents get on with this little like two year old toddling in front of them. And you could just watch everyone's eyes roll as the kid went by just going like, like oh, oh no. She was perfect. She walked up and down the aisles a couple of times. She didn't run. She wasn't screaming. She wasn't hitting anything. I never heard her cry the entire time. 
I don't know how her parents lucked out or who they prayed to or what they did, but it was, it was incredible. <laughs> That's so, that is so funny. Um, so yeah, so you started with, with your photography and the dancing and what, what did you, so it sounds like you, you were able to really kind of hone your photography skills when doing the newborn stuff, but what would you say you got out of photographing the dance scene? Cause that's a, that's a totally different world. I mean, you, you've got it on one side, you, you have a motionless lump of flesh, um, that might be smiling, might not be, might be screaming louder than any other form of human that you've ever seen in your life, regardless of size, which so is always something that, re- yeah. which is always something that really impresses me about newborns. Having, having had two kids, um, it's amazing how much volume they can, <laughs> they can generate at such a young age. Um, I can't scream that loud. Like it's amazing. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's really an amazing feat of biology, but anyway, so, but comparing that to, tight packed crowds of people moving at high, moving at high speeds, not often with the greatest lighting in the room for the purposes of photography. Like what was your experience with that sort of learning on the fly? Like how how did you, how has that kind of helped you to where you are in your photography career now? It was, it was really fascinating for me, um, between, between swing dance and then the live performance with, um, the sideshow and burlesque stuff. It's very similar in that you have a lot of very fast motion. Um, you can't stop it. You can't ask them to do it again. You can't ask them to move, you know, three feet to the left where there's better light. Um, and so doing that in, like you said, often terrible, terrible lighting, um, it's it really sets you up to be able to work in the worst conditions and then have to learn how to work in the best conditions, mm-hmm. which is an interesting uh, sort of educational reversal. Um, so and part of that too is, you know, there's a certain point where when I started with photos in 2008, nine, I don't remember when it was, um, maybe 2010 at the very latest, um, just the camera capacity was so different. And there's a lot to be said for being a talented photographer and knowing what you're doing, but there are certain things like low light where it is actually going to come down to the technology in your hand for whether you are able to capture or how you are able to capture things. Um, And so back then I was shooting at like an 800 ISO, which may or may not mean anything to anyone. Um, And yeah, what does that mean? So, uh, so I'll give you the numbers and you'll be able to do the comparison of it. So back then it was like an 800 ISO, maybe 1600 um, and a shutter speed of about one sixtieth of a second. So that you can kind of guesstimate what that feels like. Now I try to shoot at like a hundred and sixtieth of a second and my shutter speed will often be about 2000. Um, just because the camera is significantly better. So it's almost twice or twice for uh, shutter, the shutter speed. Um, so the slower the shutter speed, the more blur I'm going to get for the dancers moving. But that also means the more light comes into the camera. Um, and so the ISO is the compensation for when I can't get my shutter speed any lower, I can take my ISO up, but then that's what starts making things look grainy. Um, so I look back at some of my early pictures now and I'm like, Oh, like everyone's blurry, everyone's super grainy, but now as the technology has gotten better, the grain is better. I can shoot faster. So I don't have, um, you know, the same kind of blur going on, but that's just for me. Um, so yeah, so it really just taught me kind of how to see where the light is coming when it looks like there's no light and how to work with the light when it looks like there's no light. Um, and then how to kind of be be everywhere to capture the action. Uh, the comment that I get from a lot of people is uh, they're like, Oh, you're such a ninja. Cause they feel like I'm, I'm kind of moving all over the place and that I'm getting things and they're not noticing me there. Um, and that's, that's definitely part of my, my ideal for, for something like a wedding. Um, but also translates to a dance event where I want to be able to be everywhere uh, for a dance event. I want to be able to try and get, you know, at least one picture of everyone out there. It's not always a reasonable goal, but sure. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. You go to, you go to an event that's got 400 people. It's kind of hard to get a shot of everybody. Right. But it also sucks when you go to an event and you're like, cool, those are all of the rock stars in pictures and there's nobody else. So yeah, there's no other normal humans. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I get, I definitely get that. The, uh, it's, it's actually interesting. Talk, talk about that, that skill set as a photographer and even as it would apply to maybe somebody that isn't up, isn't necessarily a professional photographer, but the, the, the ability to kind of 
be there but not be there. Like you're there to capture, but you're not there to invade. Like that that skill set, I've always found that skill set to be fascinating among professional photographers. Like there's there's a reason at these events they always wear all black. There's a reason that they do this. There's a reason that they do that. Like I find I find that aspect of the job to be just so fascinating. Can you tell a little bit about that? Like, is that something that's just kind of trade skill that you just sort of see and figure out on your own? Or is there sort of like formalized training for, for, for that particular skill set? Like either you're stealthy or you're not, which, (laughs) which will delineate whether you are doing newborn photos for the rest of your life. Or if you are, getting into the black tie events or you're getting into the weddings or whatever it might be. Like, is that the skill set? aside from the fact that you take good photos? Is that a big portion of the skill set that differentiates one photographer to the next? And how did you sort of learn how to do that? I'm not sure it's something that, um, is particularly taught. Um, I guess it could be learned. Um, I think part of it just kind of has a little bit to do with the photographer themselves and sort of their personality and how engaged they want to be as well. Um, getting a little bit into terminology, it's a little bit of a um, photojournalistic style versus whether you're doing a portrait style or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so photojournalism, the idea is that you don't, you're not the story, you're not making the story, you're not a part of the story, you are just documenting the story. And so you want to be sort of out of the picture as much as possible. Um, and I don't, I don't have a photojournalistic background. I've never been, um, a journalist on that side. Um, sometimes I will throw the word documentary into, um, my style definitions, but, but for me, a lot of it was just wanting, wanting to be out of the way and not interfering in people's dances or in people's, you know, big events, um, and letting them do the thing because, they're not throwing an eight hour wedding at a gorgeous venue for me to have a photo shoot or people aren't hosting a three day dance event with, you know, 500 amazing dancers for me to take great pictures. Um, they're doing it to have fun. And so one of the things that drives me crazy are the photographers that go out into the dance floor. Um, mm. and I, I a hundred percent get it because there are a lot of people who are in the middle and you're not going to get those pictures unless you're in there. Um, but for me, that's the line where, you are now taking over the space of the event and you are interfering with other people basically doing their event. Um, and to a point, I mean, I think to a point, the photography in and of itself does that. And so I don't take my camera to a lot of events anymore unless I'm hired for it. Um, okay. Because at this point there are just so many cameras. Um, and I mean, personally as a dancer, I don't like having my picture taken when I'm dancing. It makes me really self-conscious. It makes me change how I'm moving. Um, everything locks up and I kind of think about like, oh, well, what is this going to look like in a picture instead of, you know, am I actually getting the lead or am I doing this right? Um, and so I think it's, it's tough because I a hundred percent recognize that I took my camera to all of those dances and I took all of those pictures and that was a huge thing for me. Um, but to not like it now personally. So it's an interesting struggle I kind of have with myself, but I don't it's know like, where hey, I fall. Hey, hey, that, that. hey, that person's me or like, Hey, I, I, I right. was that person. Absolutely. I absolutely was that person. And for most people, they really like having those pictures because they may not have pictures of themselves if they don't travel or if, you know, they were traveling, but they just, you know, weren't in the camera's line of sight for those hours. And so having that picture from like their Friday night dance may be awesome, but, you know, there's still that like 10, 15, maybe 20% who are like, hey, I really don't like having my picture. And not everyone's comfortable going up to a photographer and telling them like, hey, don't photograph me. Um, so, yeah. So and it's, that, it's an- yeah. And that's tough. That that's I, I would imagine that that's tough, especially for you as the photographer or, or in correct me if I'm wrong, but. If you're if if you hire me as a photographer to come and shoot an event with 400 people at a social event, how on earth can you accommodate that? If somebody asks that question, like how hard is that to accommodate for? It's like I can, like I'm not gonna. I'll go out of my way. Like I'll make it a point to not walk up to you personally, tap you on the shoulder, and say, "Hey," he's like, "Hey, Jane, turn around and smile." Like obviously, you're not gonna do that, but you're at a, you're at a social event where people are dancing. Like you're, you're snapping pictures. You're taking the pictures where they are. Like how hard is that to accommodate or is it easier than I'm imagining? 
It's a little bit easier than you're imagining. Um, before dance events that I go to, and it's actually a good reminder because I'm going to one this weekend and haven't done it yet. Um, I try to send out something just like on whatever the event Facebook page is and just say like, hey, Devin, I'm going to be taking photos for the event. Um, if you don't want your photo taken, please feel free to send me a message or come up to me, um, anything like that, and just let me know. Um, I am happy to do everything I can to make sure that you are not in any pictures um, because I definitely want to respect everyone's rights to privacy and their right to be at the event without having to have their image used. Um, there's actually um, a dancer who I've known pretty much as long as I've been photographing, if not longer. Um, and she doesn't like having her picture taken, like period, point blank, ever, anyone, never. And we've been at multiple events and, you know, she's come up to me like the first time was kind of just like, hey, you know, I would prefer not to be in any pictures. Just make sure I'm not in pictures. Great. No problem. I don't think we've ever had an issue. And she'll kind of like check in with me at events if we haven't seen each other in a while and be like, hey, I still don't want pictures. I'm like, great. Definitely still have that. Like, I do not photograph you ever unless you have specifically come up to me and said, like, I want my picture taken. Um, it's, I'll, bet you, I'll bet she's in the witness protection program. Absolutely. That is 100% what it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> she's going to be moving after this podcast comes out? No. Um, but um, it's, like, it's funny. I've, I've run into her at six different events, and she always tells me that she doesn't want me to phot- photograph her. But for some reason, she always has a different name at every event. <laughs> it's really strange. Crazy. Um, but yeah, so it's it's easier um, at events when people come to me or send a message and I have a face. And so I can just sort of log that in my brain of like, okay, this person I will recognize. Don't take pictures of them. Um, Whether they're in the background or not is a little bit harder, but most of my pictures, the person is blurry enough. Um, And so I will, I will look as well to say like, okay, do I see them in the background? And if I miss it, um, anyone's always welcome to send me messages and say like, Hey, I really need this picture taken down for whatever reason, even if they are, you know, happy with their pictures, but they're like, Oh, I don't love how I look in this one. Like hundred percent fine taking anything down. Sure. Yeah. It's funny, but, and I'm, I'm sure that's the case with the, with the blurring in the background. Like I know it, it's funny that that particular feature among cameras, like it's almost like that's sort of a revolutionary thing, but because, you know, if you remember way, way back in the day, just over a year ago when they released the iPhone seven plus that had the twin cap, the dual camera feature where for the, for the very first time on a cell phone, you could shoot like that portrait, that sort of a portrait type photo where you could, you could do the three dimensional angle to it and blur out the background. Uh Um, and how that was just revolutionary at the time. It's like, Oh my God, look at this amazing thing. It's like, SLRs have been doing that for 50 years. Like that's nothing special. Like that, that's nothing special is that you just didn't have the right equipment or like technologically, we didn't have enough, the ability to miniaturize that feature. Um, It's crazy for me. I don't know how the iPhone technology works, but it seems like the slightly nerdy. So the aperture of the camera should be able to go significantly shallower than most of the pictures look. And the way that you get that portrait mode is it actually takes two pictures and it overlays the blurred background one, and that's mm-hmm. how you get that portrait mode. Yeah. So it's not even using the actual camera function, which just seems like a bizarrely complicated way to go. But yeah, I get. I guess I'm sure it's just a spatial thing because for the for them, my my understanding of it is that it's just so it's it's not the camera that's doing it; it's software, right? Like this, like the software, like your it it intelligently knows. Okay, recognize the face or recognize the central thing in the middle of the screen and then the thing that's around it. Okay. Push button blur. (laughs) And then it, and it blurs the background. And that's an Uh, interesting um, sort of line with photography now of where things are easier to do in software versus in camera mm -hmm. Um, all around. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, the, Oh, can you just fix it in Photoshop? And so what do you take five seconds to do it in person? Or do you take five minutes to do it later? Or um, the camera that came out that's sort of the big cube that captures everything at every depth of field. And then you decide in post-process what aperture you want it to be and where you want your focus to be. What is this? Uh, Whoa. I can't remember what it's called right now, but it, it looks like – it almost looks like a Pringles can, but rectangular, but square. Oh, that's funny. Okay. So the way that it captures a picture is it just captures everything in focus. And then in the post-processing – you tell it like, oh, I want to focus on that tree or I want to focus on that girl or I want to focus on that swing. And you can have three images that are the same picture you took where you have those different focuses. And then you can tell it how shallow you want that depth of field to be and it'll make that happen. And so it almost, 
it almost means you can just sort of point the camera at a scene and take any picture you want to and not have to think about it. And then you do the work in post-process. I can't imagine that takes up any more memory than a normal photograph. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I, I can't spend the time on that. That's just having to do that. If I did that for a wedding and having to do that with 500 pictures would be insane. Um, so I am, I am plenty happy doing it in camera, but I think for um, commercial uses where I've been seeing a lot of people talk about it, where they can just take the picture that they want of the product and then kind of work it around from there afterwards because they're going mm-hmm. to be doing a ton of post anyway. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Now, actually, speaking speaking of like the cell phone cameras versus the like the SLRs and the other the other types of sort of point and shoot cameras that are out there, like what, for for somebody for somebody that's kind of getting into the hobby of photography beyond the overwhelming cultural obsession that we have right now of constantly taking pictures of everything that we're that we're seeing in our lives right now and. 90% of which has got to be with me, myself in the photo frame, of course, um, outside, like outside of that little selfish thing that's kind of popped up as a massive cultural th- thing that we're dealing with these days. Like how, is, is the equipment that is the, are the cameras that are coming out on the phones today? Obviously the people that sell phone that sell, haha cell phones, cell, cell phones, moving on. The, the people that sell these things are obviously saying that these are the greatest cameras that have ever hit the face of the earth. They're amazing. Look what you can do with them. But it is true. I mean, it is like, it is true within reason, isn't it? Like what, what would you say for somebody that's interested in getting into photography? Like, should somebody take the leap and go like, even if it's just hopping on Craigslist and buying a used DSLR or should, should they start with their, should they start with their cell phone? Assuming it's a relatively new cell phone with a new camera. Like, is that where somebody should probably start and just kind of figure out what it is that they like to take photos of? Or do you think people should start somewhere else if they're interested in photography? I think a lot of that depends on where their interest is and where their budget is. Um, I think if you have a couple hundred bucks to spend on a used camera, even, you know, a beat up old, you know, six year old DSLR, which at this point is, you know, practically made out of stone. Um, you know, dinosaurs were six years ago. Right. Um, so if you have that money and you think that photography is something you really want to get into, that's not necessarily a bad way to invest it. Um, but a lot of like college level digital photography classes are starting with cell phones now because people have them and it really does let you train your eye to look for the colors and look for the lines and figure out the composition side of it. Um, Mm -hmm. though you're, you're significantly more limited on kind of the technical camera aspects of the shutter speed and the aperture, um, type stuff. Um, I wonder how far, I wonder how far, far away we are from that not being true anymore. Like, the the cameras that you're seeing that you're seeing coming out on like the the new the newest Samsung Galaxies and the new iPhone eight and the iPhone ten that they just released and just the the incredible advancements that you're seeing in these cameras that are in here like I wonder how how like that's everything that these cameras do is software so I wonder how far how far are we from starting to basically add those features to the software end of the cameras that are in these phones. And eventually you're not going to really see a difference between a DSLR, like outside of maybe zoom outside of zoom capacity, which is the one area where you absolutely, there is no comparison between a DSLR with a, with a zoomable lens versus a cell phone camera. When you zoom in with a cell phone camera, the photo looks like crap. Like it it just, it just looks like crap. But if you leave, if you leave it zoomed out and you're taking a picture of a large area, or if you're simply physically holding the phone close to something small and taking a picture of it, the photos are out otherworldly compared to what we've seen in the past with these new phones. Um, but the, the different, the, the big difference is obviously the zoom. And like you said, sort of like the super technical side of shutter speed, but I wonder how, I wonder how far away we are from that. I mean, you're, you're within the industry of, professional camera users like what what's kind of the talk amongst what's kind of the talk amongst your kind about that like you know how how far how far away are people in your business from 
not investing in, you know, the, the $10,000 camera setup and just using your cell phone just in a skillful way that you've trained yourself for. Like you could say, like I use, it's like, I, I do all of my filming with the latest iPhone camera, but I'll still bet you that the, I'll bet you if I hand you my cell phone, you could take a hell of a lot better pictures than I could because you, you've got a trained eye, but the, the, the hardware transition like, is that something that people in the photography circles, I don't, I don't want to use the word fear, but is like, is that something that you think is coming? Um, I don't, I think, I think it's an interesting proposition. I do think there are phones that actually let you have those manual controls over the more technical sides. It's just not Apple yet. Um, I don't, I'm not positive. I couldn't tell you what they are. I think I, I've heard about them. Um, I'm pretty solidly locked into the all things Mac ecosystem. So I don't mm-hmm. even usually bother looking at anything, um, that isn't, you know, branded with that Apple and going to cost me more because it's the Apple tax. Um, but to be fair, everything I've had works. And when I've had issues, I've been able to get them resolved and that's why I pay for Apple. I'm in, I'm in the I'm in the same boat as you, much to the much to the chagrin of my professional professional tech support brother, who <laughs> the the day the day that I bought an Apple phone and like a phone made by Apple, and the day I bought a MacBook is the day that he told me that he's never go, never again going to help me with any computer problems because he just just he's done. He doesn't work on those things. It was yep. pretty, it was a funny conversation. Anyway, yeah, no, my my partner is. Um, huge PC guy. He's run Linux on a bunch of machines. Um, he is, he just built his own computer. Um, and he's like, I'm, I, I don't touch Apple things. Um, he hates them. So the more that I add into the, like there was one point where we were circled with like my phone on one side, my laptop in front of us. I think my arm was around him with my Apple watch on the other side, <laughs> like trapped in a circle of Apple. Um, where, where, wearing, wearing your AirPods in your ears. while Right. Yeah. To, it yeah. wasn't quite that bad, but close. Um, so, so yeah, so getting back to the, the photography question of that, um, there are definitely photographers who are iPhone photographers. Um, I, I think I'm trying to remember what specific, there's someone whose name I'm trying to remember right now and I can't think of what it was. Um, but there are two crazy, amazing wedding photographers. And when they got married, there was a guy running around with a cell phone, taking pictures, um, and one of their friends who was another professional wedding photographer, so this guy running around taking pictures with a cell phone and one of their friends was like, hey, do you want me to like say something to him or whatever? They're like, oh no, if it's this guy, like you let him do this because he takes iPhone pictures. That is what he does. His work is incredible. Um, and they, they wanted that there because they considered his iPhone work to be on the level with other professional photographers. Okay. Um, and so like there was, uh, there was a photographer who shot the Olympics on an iPhone. Um, I think it was one one of the first ones. I think it was London. Um, I don't remember what had just come out with the camera, but it was, I mean, it was a, you know, commercial stunt obviously, but it was, it was some great work. It's just the iPhone has a lot of limitations. And so all cell phone cameras really have a lot of limitations, but once you know how to work in those limitations, you can really kind of figure out how to shoot it and how to make things work right. Sure. So it's an interesting, uh, interesting feature. And I mean, there's some photographers who I've heard talk about, you know, one in five years, we're going to be out of business by, you know, the cousin running around with a cell phone. So I think it's just going to depend on what people value and how the DSLR industry kind of ups itself and makes itself more valuable than the cell phone. How do you envision that happening? Just if you if you had to look at a crystal ball, just working with the equipment as you work with it yourself, like how, how do you envision them doing that? Like what what changes do you think that they should or would make to make those accommodations? I think that getting smaller and lighter is going to be incredibly helpful. Um, mirrorless technology and micro third micro four thirds cameras. Um, are definitely gaining popularity and gaining um, sort of power just in becoming um, useful tools, but they still have limitations, much like cell phones, where there are some things that they just don't do as well. Um, And I mean, that depends a lot on who you're talking to. Some people swear by them. Um, My back would love it if I could drop, you know, five pounds of camera gear by getting smaller cameras and smaller lenses. 
but just nothing that I've used yet has convinced me that that's going to work for me. Um, and so I think that's going to be a big one. Um, I think they're working on a lot of integration with sort of straight to computers, Wi-Fi capabilities, that kind of stuff, which isn't necessarily useful for me as I shoot now. Um, I think for commercial, it's becoming more and more like you can get Wi-Fi memory cards that will transfer straight to a computer. And then people have the image. They can tell you how to move things. Um, so, I mean, I guess in the future it could become I go to a wedding. I have someone there with a laptop and my pictures are going straight to them. They're editing the pictures there and then we could turn around by the end of the day, potentially. Um, so I think that could be a way for it to go. Um, yeah, it's it's just going to be really interesting to see how phones and smaller cameras and DSLRs all kind of jumble together and what we get out of that whirlwind. Yeah. Now I'm sure as, as, as that, as that transition comes, if that transition comes, um, one thing that I'm sure is going to be sort of a critical step for the people that are still in the business, for the people that sort of survive that change in the market is, are they able to sort of be creative with the work that they're doing? Um, whether it be creative in the types of work that they add to their portfolio that they like the services that they offer or find ways to just frankly be better than like you said, the cousin that's running around with the phone and hoping that the phone makes up all the difference. Like that's what kind of getting to the point what I was mentioning before where, you know, if you, if you and I go out in a month or so from now and get the new iPhone 10 when it's first released and you give us both a week to run around and take photographs, I'm no slouch with photo, with photography. It is it's actually a hobby that I find a lot of fun and really interesting and that I take full advantage of whenever I get the opportunity. But you do this for a living. You're better at it than I am. The photo the if you if I if people, you know, halo drop the two of us into the middle of, you know, Rock Creek Park or whatever wherever it is to take photos for, you know, a day and come out and compare results. I'm sure your stuff would be head and shoulders better than mine as a finished product because you've got an eye for it. You know, you're better at it than I am. But a lot of that comes down to that eye comes back sort of to your own personal level of creativity. Like what, what would make a good shot? What's a good shot versus what's a pretty shot? Cause everybody can take a pretty photo. It's like, Oh, look at that sunset. It's pretty. Or, Oh, look at that rose. It's pretty. But the difference between that and the photographs that are truly impactful for people, like we all know what we're talking about. Like if we, if we ever looked at photographs from a wedding, like there's the pictures of the people that are dancing. They're all great. But then there's just that one shot of that old guy dancing <laughs> with the bra. You know, you know, like everybody's seen that photo. Like just there's something about that photo, that shot, the eye that it took and the timing that it took and no, knowing where to be, where to stand, like what couple to look at when it comes to taking the photography, taking the shot like that, that's, that's, that's creativity at work. And that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily have. Like where, I, where would I, one thing that I've noticed about you. And I, I mentioned this to you in our pre, in our pre conversation before the, before the interview is something that I noticed that you do on Facebook is you do something like I told you that you do something that you didn't even know that you were doing it, which was you have a creativity exercise that you do, which is what I call it. It's not what you call it, but you know, where you'll just kind of post, you've got, you've got a bunch more Facebook friends than I do. You, you post a question out there, you know, it's asking for bad advice, you know, like bad advice Mondays. Is that what it is? That's what I'm calling it. Yep. Yeah, we're like every Monday you post a question. It's like, you know, ask you ask random people to ask you questions and you will come back with the worst possible answer or solution for their particular problem that you could possibly come away with. But I I like I go on that myself and I just marvel at some <laughs> of the stuff that you come up with. Like it is just so freaking creative, but that's not something that you're necessarily born with. The, that's something that it's, it's a skill. It's a skill that can, that you are honing and that can be honed. Like for people that are, for people that are listening, like if they're, 
if creativity is so critical to sort of the future of really, if you think about it, forget about photography for a second, like any career really moving forward, you know, as we start getting into a more automated age where jobs are jobs are going away due to automation or to smarter software or, you know, we don't need we don't need to have people building things on an assembly line. The robots are doing that. We don't need drivers to drive us around or for us to drive because the cars are all automated. We don't need photo editors anymore. The software does all that. Like the, when, when you start taking all these things into account, the only way that you're really going to be able to survive is to be creative in what it is that you're able to do with yourself and with your time. Like what else do you do besides that, besides that, that kind of knowingly or otherwise sort of hones your creativity? And what would you recommend the people that are listening to maybe start to start doing to sort of work on that aspect of their personal repertoire? Well, so I think the the Bad Advice Mondays for me almost feels like a theater improv exercise. Um, mm-hmm. And I never, I never intensely did theater. I've kind of played with it a little bit in and out of school um, and I enjoy it, but it was never a, a major focus. And I really think that improv classes or improv exercises let you, they make you stop thinking and just sort of come up with something. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of times the the biggest hurdle to being creative is trying to figure out how to be creative. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times, um, like if, if you hand me a camera and say, okay, take a picture of something, I'm not the person who comes up with the super elaborate image and then makes it happen. There are definitely those people and I I am astounded by them because I can't start from zero and then create something. But I can look and say like, oh that shadow coming in is really cool. And like, what if I put, you know, what if I put a glass in front of it and see where, where the light refracts off of the glass and plays with that shadow. And then like, what if my cat comes and lays down in front of it? Um, and so those kind of things just kind of build and it's an interesting way to go. So I think, I think giving yourself a creative challenge is a good way to kind of boost creativity all around. And especially if it's not a part of your normal um, your world. So the, the bad advice Mondays thing, it's, it's not photography related. It's not even visual art related. Um, it just kind of tweaks a different part of my brain and lets that kind of roam and, you know, run around and tell people to do horrible things like snort hot sauce upside down or, uh, <laughs> I can't even remember the other ones, throw their phone out the window, um, which may or may not actually be bad advice, but so I think, I think getting out of your box and challenging yourself in other realms will encourage the main focus of your creativity. That is awesome. Um, for, for at a goofy curiosity for people that are interested in finding out a little bit more about you and your photography, um, or maybe just you as, you know, a human, uh, where could, where could people find out more about more information about you or where could they track you down? So professionally, uh, I'm all over the internet for Devin Roland Photography. Um, my website is just devinroland.com right now. Um, Instagram, Devin Roland Photography. Uh, Facebook, Devin Roland Photography. Um, you're welcome to come and follow my personal page on Facebook. I generally don't accept people unless I have like some idea of who they are as friends. But if you just follow it, you'll see the public stuff like the Bad Advice Mondays. Uh, a really interesting sort of deep dive that I go on every once in a while is I have a website called damn near daily.com D a M N uh, E a R D a I L Y. If I can spell that correctly, dot uh, com. And that's actually pictures from the very beginning of when I started photographing, I was okay. attempting to do sort of like a photo journal type thing. Um, and so some of it was like, Oh, this is what my life is. And it kind of became what I was working on. And it just kind of went all over the place. But that goes back to June of 2010. Oh, wow. Um, So it's a really interesting visual evolution of both what I was doing as a person, what I was doing as an artist, and then how things were growing. Um, Some of it's a little horrifying for me to look back at and go like, wow, that's what I did. Oh, it it always is for any sort of creative creative. – experiment. Yeah. I mean, for, for, for people that are listening right now, we're recording that we're recording this episode at the end of October, 2017. I launched the small moves podcast on September 5th of 2017. 
less than two months ago at the time of this recording. I've gone back and listened to my introduction episode, and I am terrified. (laughs) And I've been doing this for less than eight weeks at the moment. I am terrified at what I sound like back then. I've looked back at some of the stuff that I've written you know, that I initially posted up on the website or things that I even posted up on Facebook. And I am terrified. Like, it's just, it, we, we all are, we are, our, we are our worst critics. We are our own worst critics by a wide, wide margin. Absolutely. And what, what's, but something that I've learned, something that I've learned that helps me sort of cope with that. And if we're talking about ways that, you know, people that are listening to this show can learn to be more creative the best advice that I can give is realize the parable, I guess, of you being your own worst critic. Truly take that to heart, but do it in a different way in that no one cares about what you're doing as much as you think they do. <laughs> the shoe, the seven pairs of shoes that you tried on with that dress no one really cares except for you. Guys, the t- like the tie that goes with that jacket, no one really cares. Or the the quality of the photography that you're taking with your cell phone versus the $5,000 camera that you swear to God that you need to buy in order for you to be able to really get good pictures. It's not really necessarily true unless you're a professional. If you're a professional, different story, but you know, your art, the pictures, the, the, the paintings that you're making as an amateur and putting up around your house, you might think they're awful because you did them a year ago. It's like, oh my God, these things are terrible compared to where I am now. Maybe compared to where you are now, that's true. And Devin, I'm sure you can kind of say the same. Like you go back and look at your photography from some of your early dance events You with your eye could say, oh my God, I can't believe I did this. Or like you said earlier, like this is grainy. This is dark. This is, you know, this is overexposed. This one's blurry. But you know what? When I, as an untrained eye, look at a dance photo with the blurry dancer going by, I'm like, oh, that's a really cool effect. So two thoughts on that. Uh, I thought, I thought it was an effect to you. It was a screw up to me. It was an effect. (laughs) That was the advantage of dancers, for sure. Um, so true. It's vintage when it's grainy and black and white. Exactly. Um, yeah. Dirty little secret right there. Yep. Um, there's a there's actually a neat YouTube channel. I think it's called Pro Photographer Cheap Camera, and so it was a it was a whole YouTube session where they give really awful, crappy, cheap cameras to amazing photographers and then make them work with it just to see what they get. And so it is a little bit of that disproving of, you know, the gear makes the photographer or is necessary. Um, But then moving on to the own worst critic part, I really think that we also need to be our own worst critics um, because that that is what will keep letting you see what is bad or what is wrong or what needs improvement and really make you focus on working to be better. But then it also lets you celebrate when you look at something and you're like, wow, that's awesome. Because if you're looking at all of your work all the time and saying, oh, I'm amazing. I'm amazing. We're not all amazing. We're not all amazing all the time. I take between two and 4,000 pictures at a wedding, depending how long it is. I'm delivering a quarter of that, if that, depending on the day. Yeah. They're Um, not all amazing. Yeah. No. No. And sometimes that's me. It's not always just like a goofy face. Sometimes I have just completely messed something up and it is awful. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I I think, you know, almost kind of punching back on that too a little bit is maybe rather than necessarily viewing it as being your own worst critic, I'd view it more along the lines of just instead of being critical or viewing it as being critical, view it as just always be curious, like be curious about what is there a way to do this better is there a way that I can learn this better or is there equipment that might be better or not? Is there, you know, are there hobbies that might be better for me? Are there languages that I might take to better if I'm trying to, if I'm trying to learn a foreign language, like whatever it is, like rather than necessarily saying 
being critical of your own stuff and being your own worst critic, look at it from a different angle and saying, oh, is there ever a better way to do this? Because that's a different perspective. It gets you to a similar endpoint, but it's a little bit more motivating rather than saying, oh God, this photo was terrible. I've got to get better at this rather than say, is there a better, is, is there a better way to take a photo? I think it's critique with curiosity. I think, I think criticism has a bad, a bad rep because people view it as being negative or being mean or being harsh. And I think, um, I haven't been through art school, but from anyone I've talked to or like the little bit of critique work that I have done, um, just through photography, it's, it is about just a completely, um, almost bland, like, okay, well, if the shadow had been this way, or if you had done this a little bit different, like it would have made the image stronger or like this image isn't as strong because of X, Y, and Z. Um, and so I think that those critiques are important, but it is, it's sort of a, a learning to take those hits and to not, not take it as a personal or, um, overarching, you suck, you suck, you suck. It's just a, Hey, this one thing wasn't perfect. Um, and so then that curiosity to look at, okay, well, this wasn't perfect. Why wasn't it perfect? What do I need to do to make it better? Got it. All right. Well, I think, I think that's a really great, really great point to wrap up. Uh, one, one last quick question that I have for you. It's a question that I ask all, all the guests of the show, um, because the concept of the show is small moves, trying to find small incremental changes that can make a bigger difference over time. What, if you can, if you can recall what purchase have you made in recent memory of a hundred dollars or less that has had the most dramatic impact on some area of your life. You can, you can restrict it to stuff that we've been talking about. You know, you can restrict it to your photography, either your hobby photography or your professional photography, or it could be any other area of life. Um, but what, what purchase have you made that is a hundred dollars or less that's made the biggest difference in your life that you can recall? Uh, photography wise, I recently picked up a new set of presets called develop. It's D V L O P. So it might just be develop. I don't know. Um, but, uh, so that was kind of groundbreaking for me because it really introduced a bunch of different ways of editing and really working in skin tones, which is sort of a fascinating, um, whole study in and of itself with photos. Uh, and then outside of photography, I picked up an app on my phone just called calm, and it's, you know, meditation and like sleep stories and all those silly things to try and keep the rest of my life together so that I can actually do the art part. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, that's a great place to wrap up. Um, Devin, I really appreciate it. We, we covered where people can find you a little earlier, so I think we're good to go there. Well, Devin, this has really been great. I appreciate you coming on the show and I will talk to you again soon. Awesome. Have a great one. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Small Moves Podcast. I really had fun chatting with Devin today. This She has such a great take on how to turn something that is a hobby that you really love into what has turned out to be a heck of a career move. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. I really hope you did as well. Uh, really quick before you go, please go over to smallmoves.co forward slash community and let me know what you thought about this conversation on the community Facebook page. That would be great. Also, if you wouldn't mind going over to iTunes and leaving an honest review about the show on there, iTunes is a glorified search engine and they respond to the quality of reviews and the number of reviews for all the podcasts that are on there to help other people and new listeners find the show. So that would be a tremendous help for me if you would be willing to help me out. I would greatly appreciate it. Again, remember that this show is brought to you by Audible. You can get your free trial and free audiobook at smallmoves.co forward slash audiobooks. Thank you again so much for listening to this episode of the Small Moves Podcast, and I will talk to you next time around. You got this. <laughs>